0: So thank you for sharing. Thank you. Sorry
1: for almost
0: Yeah. And um, if any of us have experienced situations where it feels like things are going well, and then all of a sudden it feels like things are going to hell, yeah. and then sometimes it can feel like things are going to hell and that there's a person or there's a group of people that are somehow involved with that. It's tricky, because it's really easy to think it's their fault, yeah. You know, they're to blame, and if I could get them to not to do that, or if I could get I'm not pointing I'm pointing, I'm pointing, but I'm not pointing at you. that somehow life would be OK. And it might be that we have the skill to negotiate and to uh, somehow find a way to intervene so that these things don't happen. But when things have happened, they're in the past, and what's coming up is a memory about something in the past is arising in the present, and the memory is colored with, with anger and frustration and resentment and bitterness and hatred and wanting it to be different. So we can't change what happened in the past, but we can work with what's arising in the present. So, you know, if we've got resentment and anger and hatred and bitterness and desire, that's a lot to work with. And we can work with it in the present. So one of the things about all of this stuff is is, is that the more we grab on to the idea that it shouldn't have happened, it feeds the thought that I have the right to feel all this way. Okay? So our attachment to the thought, it shouldn't have been this way, feeds anger and resentment and bitterness and desire that it should be different. But it's not different. It is that way. And what I'm left with is a whole cauldron of stuff that doesn't make me happy or healthy or peaceful or wise or skillful or um, responding well to what is happening. Yeah? So in the moment, what you have is what is present. And in the moment, what you have are choices of how you can relate to what is present. And so if you fix your thought onto the thought of what happened in the past, it's going to put fuel on the fire of all of the negative feelings that you have. All right? If you drop your attention into your body, just like we did standing meditation, cut through the thought and begin to feel what are the somatic correlates of everything that you're feeling. You can begin to see where there's tension you can relax, where there's grasping you can find some space, where you don't want to know you can actually show up. So you can start working with your body as a gateway for working with some of the emotions in your mind. When you're working with your body, your body doesn't have a story about what happened in the past. And your body doesn't have a kind of idea about how it's supposed to go in the future. And it doesn't construct hims and hers and theys and good ones and bad ones. It just has sensations that are arising. And because it's much more direct and uncomplicated, you can get some leverage with that in a way that can help settle the whole kind of cacophony of emotional agitation in response to something that happened in the past that you don't think should be that way. Hi. Um, Thank you. You actually kind of started to talk a little bit about what I was gonna ask, which is that I noticed on your website that it talks about you teaching about the subtle body and also on the flyer um, the topic of sexuality, which I think um, Those two things, the physical body and also um, sexuality and sexual energy in the world are things that I don't hear talked about a lot by Buddhist teachers. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you started teaching those things and why you think it's important. So I started talking about these things because I suffered like hell with them. And I didn't hear anybody talking about them. Or if I did hear, you know, five conversations in 35 years about them, often they were from perspectives that I thought, are you coming from another planet? You know? Where are you coming from? This is so totally not my experience. What are you talking about? You know? So, you know, I I have had... I have always had a sense that our own experience as sexual beings is a very basic experience, and no matter who we are, no matter what our sexual orientation is, no matter what our lifestyle is, no matter our precept commitment, no matter what our sexual activity is, we can't get away from that. That is fundamental. It comes with having a body. And because of my own personal life experience, which put this front and center both in terms of early childhood injury around all these things as well as very early kundalini activation around all these things it's like you put a lot of energy on top of a lot of injury and you've got a molotov cocktail that needs to be handled very skillfully otherwise you've got big problems and um As much blessings as there are in the Theravadan tradition, they don't have any teachings on working with kundalini energy in the subtle body. And kundalini has all to do with working with energy. And the more I was able to understand the subtle body, the more I developed intuition about how to work with the kundalini And the more I could work with the Kundalini, that gave me more capacity to navigate the incredibly rich and complicated territory of life force, sexuality, sexual injury, sexual desire and separate out the nuances between all of these things so that I was tracking what was happening and responsive to what was happening in a way where I felt uh, healthy and uh, clear and on track. Now, honestly, I don't understand why people don't talk about it, other than the fact that I think that people haven't got to a place where they feel comfortable with all of this because it's so complicated and so easily goes into... um, (sighs) places of activation, but just because something is difficult for me is never a reason not to work with it. So I don't understand why, like as an institution, the Buddhist community doesn't talk about this. I I don't get it. But I don't need to understand that. All I need to know is that I talk about it, and I talk about it as often as I can in whatever safe spaces that I can create, that I can do that. And that's why... You know, and I thought, okay, so we don't talk about it. We don't have this as a topic on retreats. We don't make safe space. It's like, okay, let's, how about if we change all of that? How about if we talk about it? How about if we make safe space? How about if we have this as a topic for retreats? You know, it's like, what happened if we turn the whole thing upside down and create a retreat that is specifically designed to create the safety? And drop in so that we are grounded with meditation, and open up these topics and in insight dialogue so that we're not just doing it by ourselves in solitude, but doing it in relationship where we're inquiring with another person about how these things are all landing. So last year, I was uh, Sharon and Sharon Beckman Brindley and I co-led an insight dialogue Vipassana meditation retreat on the theme of love sexuality and awakening for, for women and It was very powerful. And there's another one happening this year. It's in Colorado. And it's undersubscribed. So I haven't heard in the last few days if there's more people signed up. But at the last that I heard, there wasn't enough for it to go ahead. So the cutoff date is the 23rd of April. However, if this retreat or whether or not this retreat goes ahead, there's going to be a retreat in Charlottesville, Virginia next June. And I don't remember dates very well. I have to look at, on the computer. But um, there's another retreat scheduled. But I feel... Um, I mean, I'm living in a woman's body, so I, I have more familiarity with how it works for me. And, you know, having lived in a community of sisters, more sense of what that's like for nuns. I don't know how it works for men. But what I know for women is, is that if we don't have a healthier relationship with our own life force, we've got no ground. And that no ground not only is no ground of being comfortable with who we are, it's no ground of energy to express in the world. We've got no ground to receive love. We've got no ground to give love. It's absolutely fundamental. And it is my opinion, I don't know if it's correct or not, it's my opinion, that part of the reason why this whole thing has been stuck under a carpet and shoved in a closet and clamped down with locks and keys is because the energy is so strong and so evocative that for a number of people, they're just trying to cool it out enough to sort of get something approximating close enough to get a handle on it. So if you put it front and center and speak about it, it's possible that it's doing the opposite. But for myself and for the women that I know, we have to create the safe space to be able to workshop this both somatically as well as in dialogue and relationship with what we're doing with it in order to come into a healthier relationship with what's going on. And... You know, everybody has all kinds of fantasies and imaginations about what it is to be celibate. And one of the imaginations, which I also had, is is that when you go through the monastery gates, there's some kind of a laser on the front door. And you walk through, and it freeze-dries your sexual organs, and they just fall off. And then it's finished. You don't have any more problems. It's done. And it's sort of like, well... That's not really what happens. There is no laser. And, you know, you walk through the front gates and you are still a human being with a human body with all of the feelings and instincts and energies that you have as a person. And even though the container is very clear that we're not engaging in sexual behavior of any kind, it doesn't disallow feeling or desire for for feeling or desire for contact. And so, one of the blessings that we have in a tradition that there's a lot of wisdom teachings is, is that it, the teachings don't ask us not to feel. They don't ask us to say that you know or say that it's not okay to feel, and they have all kinds of clarity about how to work with this stuff when it's arising. But in the in the in the Theravada tradition, the forest tradition you know, the understanding of the nature of the subtle energy body and then how to work with the energy bringing it into the central channel is not teachings that I've heard. And so this is stuff that I've had to intuit, discover, figure out. And the more that I understand that, the more that I see that this life force, which on one end of the spectrum can be the experience of sexual energy, is also when the quality of desire is, is worked with until the desire component of it begins to cool out. Then the life force becomes part of the chanda, the aspiration which is not separate from the energy which is used for stabilizing the mind in awareness, in emptiness, in bliss and in awakening. You know? So, in terms of like thermodynamics, if you take it from a completely scientific perspective, energy cannot be changed or destroyed. It just changes form. Okay? So, when we're talking about sexual energy, we can change the way it expresses itself, but we can't fundamentally destroy it. We can't create it. We can change it from this kind of energy to that kind of energy. And we all know that. You know, if we've got desire and we're not able to satisfy that desire, we can get really crabby really quickly, you know? And so, you know, the mechanisms to switch from desire to anger are something that we know very easily. But we can also switch desire to devotion or desire to service, desire to generosity, desire to... Creativity. And so understanding how to work with these things and find other switches that are more skillful than from desire to anger or from desire to gratification then gives us more choices in how we are responding to stuff that's arising. And anytime we've got more choices, we've got more freedom. And when we've got more freedom, we have. More space in our own lives and more potential health in the relationships with the people around us. You you might appreciate this. You know, many of you here, you've never met me before, and so, you know, a nun's coming. So, what does that mean? Who knows what that means? Yeah, and you didn't know what I was going to talk about. I didn't know what I was going to talk about either. But a couple of years ago, you know, I was in the the Denver Dharma Punks group, and I was at that point, before I would come, I would ask about, you know, what talk I should give because I didn't want to be. The big deal dude coming and imposing the teachings on the people. I wanted it to be a relational thing where people were actually in agreement about the topic I was talking about. So, you know, I spoke to the facilitator at the time and and I, you know, I was saying this tongue in cheek, you know, because I had a sense of the response. But I said, Do you think there might be any interest if I gave a talk on the theme of love, sex, and awakening? And, you know, the response was, fuck yeah! (laughs) So word went out, you know, this is the talk. And it's a nun who's giving the talk. (laughs) So it was like standing room only. And three-quarters of the people who came had never met me before. So they had never seen me. They didn't know what I talked about. They didn't have a clue what it meant to be a nun or what I was practicing. They had no idea. So, you know, it was packed. And then many people came up afterwards and they said, quite frankly, as punks are wont to do, I came because I had no idea that you would have anything whatsoever to say about this topic that would be useful. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like a theater production. They came because they wanted to watch the performance.
2: (laughs) How about just building on what you um, described, do you think, and I, I know this is going to sound like a closed question, but it's really an
0: open question because I'm wondering how this works. Is there a relationship between what you're describing as the sort of not dealing or not working directly with Pinovini energy, life force, and some of the power gender dynamics? going on in the institutions that you've been involved with or in the larger Buddhist world. I'm just wondering how these two things are related. How not working directly with what you brought forth could also be feeding complexity around gender. Brilliant question. I never thought of it that way. First of all, not everybody experiences kundalini. So are they not aware of their experiencing? of a, It's latent in everybody, but it's not active in everybody. But in terms of sexuality, it's, I mean, it's present. It's a, it, that's there. And I think it, it, to say that there was a direct correlation would be reductionist. I think it was a component of it, but I don't think it was the only thing that was operating. So certainly I can say that part of what I interpreted as what was happening was control of women and nuns was a manifestation of lack of ease of some of this stuff okay so if you kept the nuns there rather than here then you didn't have to deal with your feelings around nuns okay so if you have if the if the, if the men were in power and they had control and they could tell the nuns you can't be here you have to stay there then they could create more space around Whatever was arising for them as monks in relationship to nuns. Now some of it one person asked, asked actually asked Ajahn Sajito, because Ajahn Sajito was the mother superior of the nuns for many years. And you know, and so you know, all of the monks were afraid that if you have five minutes of contact with nuns, you're gonna be in raging sexual desire for the rest of your life and that's gonna be a problem as a monk, you know. So they asked him quite bluntly you know, have you had to deal with sexual desire, with dealing with the nuns? And his response was, sexual desire, no. The desire for murder, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The whole thing about what goes on with all that power dynamic is complicated and rich and important to understand. But I don't think it's as simple as just reducing it all to an inability to attend to sexuality. I think it's a component, though. Mm-hmm. Yes, please.
1: Well, thank you for coming. Uh, I had no idea this was going to be the experience that I think it's very cool that uh, you know, have you know, the courage the you know, drive so, more of this, I mean, it pretty awesome, you know. Um, for me, I, I had no idea what it was, what it's like to be a, a woman in a woman's body, but uh, you know, I know that uh, in in a man's body, that uh, in relation, you know, like uh, in, in loving relationships, uh, I, that's probably the most complicated situation I think I've ever had in my life is you know uh, connecting with another person on a uninhibited, you know. Uh, completely open, level, and not being challenged consistently by fear, and constantly. Um, you know, and, and sometimes I've seen the opposite: that were with absolutely no fear, everything was, was really beautiful, uh, you know, completely connected. Um, but it, you know, eventually, you know, since I'm single, <laughs> fear—I and I believe at some point has is, ruined is, you know, you a lot of other relationships. You know. Uh, you know Jealousy, or um, feelings of inadequacy, or um, you know, um, competition—all the, the life stuff that goes on—that really means nothing in the end when you see it what it really is. guess um, so my question is um, you know, from a, a religious standpoint, I've been coming here for a couple of years. I, I have not come on first, first Thursday. I did come to see you, I had no idea who you were, I'm glad you were here. Um, yeah, what would what, 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 what you say, or if, um, and is the, you know, the perspective of relationship this environment? You know?
0: So, I'm not going to answer your question, okay. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about it in another way. You see, we take ourselves to be one person, that's not true. We're a composite of many, many different components. And, you know, part of us are wise and uh, mature. Part of us is um, young. Part of us is tender and vulnerable. Um, part of us is very much a person wanting to connect with another person. Part of us is divine that really understands that the person really is sort of like a suitcase or a luggage or a vehicle through which these other things are acting out. Okay, And what's in the present moment at any given time is really pretty potluck. I mean, it changes quite quickly, and it's dependent on um, all kinds of other circumstances and conditions. So when two people feel a sense of affinity or connection or closeness or attraction, you know there's a loveliness with that sometimes it's not so lovely because the hormones get all activated and the mind goes crazy and you're obsessed with the crazy things that start happening in the mind in terms of wanting and desiring and wanting to protect it and you know and all of the kind of agitation around wanting to follow desire and fear of that but what's also happening if you dial in and turn on the light carefully is is that you can watch yourself moving between all of these different components of who we are, from the divine that wants to connect and be in union with that which is ever-present, to the human that wants to be in relationship with another, to the child that's actually looking for tenderness and holding and safety and reassurance and being seen and being validated. And then what is more complicated in the fact that there's all these different things is is that they can be changing so quickly, okay? Because they're not, it doesn't require, it doesn't, you can move from being a a wise transcendent being to being a two-year-old in a matter of seconds, okay? And, and, your partner is doing the same thing. And so you've got two people who are navigating this huge complicated range of human experience and oftentimes not tracking where they're at and where their partner's at. So it's inevitable, okay, that you're gonna end up in places that just feels out of control, right? Now, I don't know if you hung out around children very much, but if you have two two-year-olds playing together with no adult supervising, usually it doesn't last very well very long, okay? So if you've got two people who've all of a sudden switched into a very young aspect of themselves, both of them are saying, I need, I need, I need right now, I need right now, I need right now, I'll listen to you if you listen to me first, you've got to listen to me first. Listen to me first and then I'll listen to you. <laughs> And so you've got two people who are in a state of really profound need because of profound suffering. Nobody has the capacity to give to the other, and the other is needing as much as they are. Yeah? And so a huge fear arises because this is early childhood mind states of stuff that didn't get sorted out then, that usually is coming through adult relationships. And when there isn't the capacity to track it, then that's what's happening. The two-year-old is running the house. Well, a two-year-old running a house is going to be a problem in not a very long period of time, okay? There needs to be some wisdom component that comes in and says, okay, it's not that you have to make the two-year-old go away. Nobody makes the two-year-old go away, but we don't put them in the position of running the house, okay? They need help, and they need cuddles, and they need kisses, and they need dinner, and they need to be go to bed and sometimes they need to have a bath but they don't Mm -hmm. run the house so when we catch ourselves in that position where our children aspects of ourselves are present then what is needed is to register that and then to bring about something that can hold that they don't have to disappear but we don't let that part of our mind dominate yeah so when we've had experiences as human beings of just the incredible deliciousness of being present and being able to connect with another, and there's no fear, we have that as, a, as an experience. We know what that can be like. And then when fears arise, depending on where they're coming from, they need to be responded to. But what's needed to respond to them is to know what is going on. And so if we can't track what's going on, it's going to be very hard to respond to them. So when we move from, you know, the sense of being somebody divine to somebody human to somebody very young, very quickly, it takes enormous kind of sharpness to follow all of that and respond to each of those movements in a way which is responsive. And part of the way is by recognizing that what is here is what's here. What is here might not be what's supposed to be here, but it is here. And it is worthy of care and attention and respect. So this plays out emotionally, this plays out sexually, this plays out in all kinds of relationships. And as far as I can tell, there's no getting away from it there's only understanding it, moving through it, becoming more skilled with it. So I didn't answer your question, but I talked around it in a way, do you have more feeling of settledness or comfort or uh, understanding? Yeah. Do you have any more questions about that? I
1: think I'm okay. Okay. Can you talk more about that
3: sense of holding that Two-year-old, because I've been through that experience, and I think I've, I've done a good job of it in fleeting moments, but I found it very difficult to to hold it without it winding up running the house.
0: So I couldn't do this by myself initially. I needed help. So I learned how to do this by working with a therapist. And then after working for a while with a therapist, I learned I could do this myself, okay? So the first thing is when there's a a child present, you need to recognize there's a child present. And I have... How do I recognize there's a child present? Because oftentimes beneath a certain age, I don't have the capacity to articulate anything. I feel things very strongly, but I can't actually say what's going on, okay? It's very... It's like... You know, hurting, sad. You know, it's like very simple. So if I'm trying to check in with myself, I don't have a very big vocabulary or any vocabulary about what's happening. So that's one clue about what's happening. Another clue is the way that I feel. So um, it's, and I can't describe that. But there's a way that I feel that's a signal to me that I'm not in an ordinary level of consciousness. I'm in a different kind of consciousness. So when I can notice that, then I need to do two things. And that's where it's tricky, and that's why sometimes it takes some support to learn how to do this, because you need to be able to move back and forth between inhabiting that experience as the child and knowing what that feels like directly, And accessing that part which is wise and loving and compassionate and can respond. You need to go back and forth. This is not a simple, easy, beginner kind of task. This is actually a challenging task. Okay, To know what that feels like, how that moves, how to be able to go in and out. Yeah. So when I'm able to go in and out, then what I do is I begin to tune in to the kind of, well, where is this child at? You know, what age am I dealing with? You know, so if I'm dealing with a 2-year-old or a 3-year-old, that's different than if I'm dealing with a 10-year-old or somebody who's 14, okay? So when I'm dealing with somebody who's really little, you know, I scoop them up imaginarily in my hands or take them for a walk and talk to them in symbols like, you know, make up songs about bunnies or talk to the moss or the bunnies or the or the ducks or something so that I'm not telling them I am relating in a way where in language they can get about what's happening okay when i as an adult can interpret what's happening to this child for this child make sense out of it then it takes a very short period of time for me to be able to grok what's happening, come back into adult consciousness, and then be able to process it from that. But usually what happens for me, or oftentimes the reason why I get jolted, is because there was something that's coming up that was disallowed when I was a kid, and I didn't have enough support to reframe it so that I could make sense out of it. So when I'm able to reframe it and make sense out of it, then the disallowing dissolves once it's in permission, then very quickly it comes back into a, like an ordinary consciousness where I can work with it as, a, as an adult person with a meditation practice of observing what's going on. Does that make sense? Yeah
3: thinking on my own experience, the, the the voice that's trying to console the, in my experience, the voice that's trying to console the child isn't usually very gentle.
0: Yes. So we need to learn that, you know, a two-year-old, when they are hysterical, they don't need to be yelled at. They They need to be comforted and to be reassured and to know that there's somebody around who's, who's big and able to make sense out of what's going on and to help them to relax and to let them know you've got it in hand, you know, and you're, gonna ha- you're there for them. You're going to be there to help them figure it out. But part of the reason why the one that's consoling isn't very gentle is because there's a fundamental lack of acceptance that that child has arisen. It's like there's something that says it's totally unacceptable that this child has shown up right now. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it unacceptable? Why? They're here. Why is it unacceptable? They are here and they are in distress and they need our care and attention right now. So we have to work with the idea that that is not supposed to happen and recognize that that is an idea that doesn't serve anybody. And when we can get with the program that this is what is happening, then as soon as we can get with the program, we can be more caring and appropriate in our response. You know. But, you know, it's, it's a little bit normal. I mean, when I started meditating, I, I thought because I was passionate about meditation, that meditation was going to solve everything, you know. So, you know, my two-year-old would come, and I would say, you know, go sit in the room by yourself and figure it out. Well, it's like, who in their right mind would say that yeah. to somebody who's two? Go sit in the room by yourself. Don't talk to anybody and figure it out. You know, because I had the idea that observation was the only thing that was needed to be able to resolve everything. And it simply is not true. Observation works when you've got an adult consciousness that's capable of observing. It doesn't work when that's not what you're dealing with. So, for me to understand, there are contexts where observation works and there are contexts where it doesn't. Then help me understand well. I need to be sharp and astute as to when I'm in context and when I'm out of context and respond appropriately. Because if we if any of us, if any of us saw an adult tell a distressed two-year-old to go sit in a room, not talk to anybody and figure it out, we would be outraged and rightfully so. That's totally unconscionable behavior. It's unconscionable to do that to somebody too. They don't have the capacity to figure it out by themselves. So we are not one solid lump that moves around as an adult of this body age you know it's a fluid matrix and sometimes we are and sometimes we're not sometimes we're ancient sometimes we're tiny sometimes we're infantile sometimes we're human sometimes we're divine we're not one solid thing yes
1: follow up to that do you see the two I find that for me it takes a long time afterward to see that the two year old has arisen and needed attention or the five year old. And often when it arises is the time when I really need to recognize that, or it would be really helpful and it's the most difficult to do in real time. Is that a skill that I, if I were hoping to develop that skill, is it overly ambitious or is it realistic and what tools might I rely on to get there? <coughs>
0: anything, with any skill, we have to see that there's a value in developing the skill. And for me, part of the way that I developed the value of developing the skill was recognizing the enormous suffering when I didn't have the skill. You know, I could be stuck in these regress states for unbelievable amounts of time. You know, and not at all be able to figure out what was going on. Or resolve it. And when I could develop the skill, then it was often just a question of minutes. Sometimes if it was really a severe thing, it would be an hour. But before that, you know, it could be a week or two. Or I'd be sulking and moping around for a month and not have a clue what was going on. So my... Interest was directly proportioned to the level of suffering I experienced when I wasn't responsive and to recognizing how quickly it would resolve when I was. So it's not rocket science. And then what can happen in community what can happen in loving partnership, what can happen in sangha, is is that people can hold the space for each other. So that everybody is not with their abandoned two-year-old, but you've got occasionally an adult that shows up on the scene and says, you know, do you need some support? Or, you know, can I help with something? Or how about if you just sit here and have a nice hot cup of drink of tea, and I figure that out? How would that feel, you know? And so when you've got adults who are in relationship with each other with agreement to support, rather than everybody's on their own to figure it out by themselves, then sometimes you can have things where it's like you don't have to figure it all out by yourself. Somebody can actually model what that looks like for you when you haven't yet figured it out. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hi.
2: Um, this topic is amazing. Thank you. But it's making me think about actual children, mm-hmm. um, work with kids, and it's often a situation where maybe it's ten weeks, and I'm in there just once a week, so I'm not their main teacher. No, I don't have so much influence over them in the class. And um, you know, some of this unconscionable behavior is happening. Um, know, kids who are struggling in a bunch of special ed classes getting yelled at they have to sit still sort of opposite of what they need Um, a lot of them are really heavily medicated which is really upsetting but I'm just thinking you know I'm in this situation of having to respect the teacher who's tired and I feel for them and they're with these kids all day and then there's the kids so I'm just Figuring, you know, like, what is my role here? Like, I can't change the whole system. I try to just be loving and kind and use a different voice to the children than the teachers are and be supportive and encouraging and teaching the art. But it's really painful to see this kind of behavior. They're not two years old, but they're six years old, they're seven years old, you know, where it's just like, Ooh, you're actually yelling at that kid? That's suffering. So, I'm just, is there anything else I can do? It almost to me doesn't matter what I'm teaching, <laughs> you know, sort of in every situation of teaching, I'm trying to, it's about at all spreading these principles and caring and love for children, whatever, it's whatever I'm teaching.
0: So, you know, my sense is, is is that there's two beings that are suffering. One is the child and one is the person who's yelling at the child, yeah. and. It isn't that one suffering is greater than the other. It's just that one would hope that the person who's an adult who's yelling at the child would have more resources to self-regulate and understand what's going on. When a system like this, you know, it's not just your relationship with one individual. You're in a system. The system is going to be breeding a kind of ignorance that's supporting both the teachers getting exhausted so that they're yelling at children who've got no capacity to self-regulate, okay? Or something else going on. So you're in something that's systemic. And um, changing systems is an art form. It's not impossible. And in fact, you know, there may be a way that you can gather other people who have a similar concern that you do and begin in a loving way to start opening the conversation up what's happening with the teachers that they're so exhausted that they're yelling at children who've got no capacity to self-regulate. Okay. Changing systems is an art form and it takes skill and guts because it doesn't always go perfect and sometimes, you know, you, by, by speaking up you stick your neck out. And so there needs to be a kind of like somatic register of what are you up for, what are you willing to do and what is the best way of going about it? So, certainly, it's not going to help anybody to blame, you know, to nail the teachers on a cross and, and burn them alive. That's not going to help anybody. But to gently begin to recognize that there's something happening that is not congruent with what is, feels like is needed may create an opportunity where everybody's needs might get a little bit better met. Like the teachers might have a little bit more support, they might have a little bit more opportunity for education, they might have an opportunity for their own frustration to be released in a way which is less um, unskillful, and the kids might be better cared for. So when we feel something is not right, sometimes that is an impetus for action, and the action isn't only in our behavior with how we are relating to the child and to the person, but how we're relating to the other adults in the system in terms of what needs to be said or how can we bring this up in a way that is caring but clear. This is not, this is not correct. It's so you, It's huge. It is huge, but, you know, we're living in a huge world, you know? And, you know, one of the questions that Sydney asked me when I walked in or was recommending that I talk about was the, was the combination of, of what's happening in global climate change and how we respond to that. So here we have a, a world where, I mean, you are in New York, You've gotten blasted by Hurricane Sandy. You've had a freezing winter. You got piled on by snow. It's like it's happening here. You know, a couple of weeks ago was the first time that there have been evacuees from climate change. There was a community of people in Papua New Guinea. They had to leave their home forever because it has gotten inundated with salt water. They can't live there any longer. It's happening. We are in a big world with big problems. And it's not helping anyone to say, I don't want to go there. And so learning the skill of how is it that we can drop in and feel what's present and be connected to our own body and our hearts, relax, our capacity and then begin to start extending our idea of what our limitations are and gathering together with other people who are interested in doing the same to see what can emerge let me just tell you a story I live in Colorado Springs Colorado Springs is not renowned for being ecumenically liberal
1: laughter
0: and in Colorado Springs is the national headquarters of the religious right, okay? I was sitting next to the publisher of one of the local magazines, and he was telling me, because I don't, I, don't, I don't have a television, I don't read newspapers, so I don't really know what's going on, that one of the people who's in charge of the churches and the religious right has a radio show with two million people who listen to a show, Okay. So, I'm a Buddhist nun. I'm probably as extraterrestrial to him as can you can possibly get. But I'm thinking strategically. He's got two million people listening to his radio show. Maybe there's a little bit where we can agree together. We're on the same planet. And because we're on the same planet, there are some things that being on the same planet mean that we would all benefit from if we did. If we did. So I thought, well, what I should do is I should go meet him and see if we can have this conversation and see what might happen. I mean, what do I have to lose? He doesn't like me? So, so? (laughs) So I thought, I don't know who he is. I have never had anything to do with the religious right. I have no idea where to begin. And so I have all of these unknowns. I have a feeling of this is a potential that may have something positive, but all of this unknown, I don't know how to navigate. So, I'm on a coalition of dhamma teachers who are interested in climate change. And I'm not that new, I'm not that I'm not that familiar with this group, but I thought I will speak up in the group and mention that this is where I live and there's a person in town who's like that. So that's all I did. That was the risk that I made. I mentioned that this was a thought that I had, that this might be a possible connection to work together. The act of voicing both my concern, that I don't know how, as well as the potential that there might be something, there were four suggestions from people on the call. And one of them grew up as a Baptist and knows all about evangelical people. She's very familiar with them. She says, I can talk to you about. Somebody else knows the person who's been working with the evangelical ministers in the country and can connect me up with them because he might either know this person or know an inroads in. Inn, okay? So what I'm saying is, is, is that For me, the feeling of global climate change is something that moves through my system, and I'm looking for what I can do. I don't have the answers, but I'm looking for what I can do. When I heard that there was a person in my own town who has a radio show where two million people listen to it, I thought, there may be an opportunity to use this for a good purpose. But there's all of these other things that I don't have the information how to make that happen. So I voiced the interest as well as did it in a context where people were appreciative of the concern and next steps came about what to do. I didn't have to figure it all out by myself. But I had to hold the uncertainty as well as the possibility that there might be something good that would come from this. When are we supposed to finish?
2: Uh, generally eight thirty.
0: We can have one more question, and then let's close with uh, the Yeah.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, there's been a nice thread, um, so see uh, back on the last uh, discussion, and because this idea of taking action, right? This idea of recognizing that something is off and then, you know, and then sort of making a decision to take action on something um, is very, very appropriate. And uh, my... So what happens to me, whether it's a social thing, oftentimes with me it's a a personal thing. It's like a boundary. It's it's like uh, this isn't working for me and I have to work with it and deal with it and confront it and sometimes say no to it. Um, What happens is, and and it's it's pretty amazing this whole discussion because I'm actually in a situation right now where I, I did stand up for myself about, I mean it's a long story, but about a month ago and what's happening is all of these feelings and they're sometimes really, really overwhelming. And the reason why I often allow myself to not take action is because I'm so afraid of all of this overwhelming feeling. And it's happening right now, and this is exactly what I fear. You know, like, having this, like, almost sometimes paralyzing experience is like, no, I don't want to experience that, you know, fear paralysis. Um, and and I can definitely see it happening with like a social issue. Like if there's a social issue, and then all of a sudden there's this uproar, and people, I guess what it is is people don't like me. People disagree with me. People, you know, I I, I cause a, a wave or a riff or a, you know something, then. I start to feel guilty. I start to feel like less. Than. And so, so what? I guess my question is, what would you recommend with regards to uh, th- that experience of just like being really averse to those feelings once you know whether it's a social issue or, or a personal boundary, a personal issue, a relationship issue. Once I make that
0: decision to sort of take care of myself? How do how, how it work? So, so, you know, hats off to you for standing up for yourself. You know, that's really, that's really good. And also hats off for you for surviving all the things that you are terrified of having to deal with. And I want to point out that you are alive and you're speaking and you're sitting in this room with all these other people and you're sitting upright. You're not writhing on the floor. You're actually doing it. Okay? So sometimes when the worst possible things happen, it's actually an enormous blessing. Because it it releases the fear that we're not going to be able to handle it. It's not comfortable, yeah. But you're handling it. Okay? So you need to remember that you're actually handling it. And so that gives you more courage the next time. Yeah? In terms of these big things like climate change, it's so huge that we need support. We can't just do this by ourselves. And so there's a book that recently came out that's fabulous. It's called Active Hope by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnson, and, or John Stone. And they're talking about all of the many different things that come up. And one of them is, is just the fact that it feels so totally overwhelming. We don't have a clue in the world where to begin. And they have they have a very clear ways of unpacking that and holding that and contextualizing that and 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 ideas of how to move forward with that. So we each have our own personal um, need to work with this, but in situations like with climate change, we need to do it with each other. It's too big, and in in. This particular book, I've read it and I love it. I think it's really brilliant. It would be a, a, a good frame as a, like a kind of a workshop to go through. How do you deal with the kind of things that come up? You know. And, I mean, the title of the book is, um, "Active Hope." How to, f- how to face the things. Something that without going crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. No, really puts it into perspective. So let's just um, change gears for a moment and come back into sitting and just have a moment of meditation.